0: Hey, guys. This is the Shintaito of America podcast. I'm David Franklin. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a safe but nonetheless terrifying situation comforting a friend who is even more neurotic and terrified than you are, only to find that by going through this together, you form a lasting bond with each other? Master Shintaito instructor Michael Thompson's autobiography, Untying Knots, is full of such episodes of existential unfolding, some disturbing, some lighthearted, all rendered with quiet, dry wit and honesty. That's what I'm going to be reading to you on this, episode 11 of season 2 of the Shintaito of America podcast, which is what you're listening to. And I'm Shintaito instructor David Franklin, so that's who you're listening to, and Shintaido, in case you haven't heard of it, or if you've heard of it, but aren't very familiar with it. Personally, I've been practicing this truly amazing form of body movement since 1983. It was invented in Japan in the 1960s by a group of artists, actors, and martial artists. It's dynamic, playful, and creative, a holistic health exercise for all kinds of bodies, and it can be a way to open up to our deeper connections with the natural world, within ourselves, and with our communities. But that's just my simple summary of what Shintaido is. In fact, I've noticed a strange paradox. Often, the most experienced Shinto practitioners are the least able to explain what this discipline is really about, other than something vague, like what I just said. In fact, I was just cleaning up my computer files and opened a text file called What is Shintaido, number three million, or something like that. And it said, Shintaido is like a combination of martial arts, yoga, and primal scream therapy, which might sound a little more intimidating than, for example, another one, Shintaido is a playground for grown-ups. So, listeners, what I'm going to do is open it up to you. Send me your definitions or phrases that describe Shintaido for you in 20 words or less, and I'll read a selection of the interesting ones during the outro of the next podcast. The best is to email us at podcast at shintaido.org, but you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram just by searching for Shintaido of America. No matter your definition of the word shintaito, there is no question that it can be intimidating at times, as well as profoundly transformative and rewarding, as you will hear in these chapters of Untying Knots. Untying Knots is Michael Thompson's story of his lifelong encounter with the practice of shintaito. Michael is one of only four master instructors of shintaito in the world today and was instrumental in bringing this discipline to North America. By the way, if you're just joining us, you can hear previous chapters of Michael's book, in fact, all the previous episodes of this podcast, featuring interviews and other audiobooks, at our website, www.shintido.org. I'll tell you more about that later, but right now, let's jump into Untying Knots. To set the scene, in the last chapter, chapter 12, it's the late 1970s, Michael and Haruyoshi Ito, with whom he co-founded Shintaito of America, are in San Francisco, and Michael is struggling with his own demons, as well as with the cultural challenges inherent in deepening his study of Shintaito under Ito's direction. Untying Knots, a Shintaito Chronicle by Michael Thompson, chapter 13 which was originally section 2, chapter 6 in the printed book. I left my heart. Around the end of 1978 and the beginning of 1979, we received visits from Shintaitoists from around the world. It seemed that Aoki was spending half his time there, and we had several opportunities to practice under his direction and hear his lectures. Since I felt I was getting mainly negative feedback, I began to direct my bottled-up resentment toward him, as well as toward Ito, and in fact, anyone who happened to be Japanese in the immediate vicinity. In February, he turned up with Masashi Minagawa and Ito's younger brother, Jugoro. They were immediately dubbed the Gang of Three after taking over our apartment. We had moved into a new place, along with three other practitioners, including Bela Breslau, Ito's future wife, and using our place as a base for their private workshop. Actually, it was open to the visiting French too, but no Americans were invited because we were supposedly too tall to do the throwing techniques they were working on. Hearing this, my resentment reached a crescendo, and I basically ignored them when they returned from their practice. This probably represented my most blatant flouting of the hierarchical system. If I had been completely rational at the time, I would have realized that they were trying to develop a new curriculum, and, in fact, we probably weren't limber enough to contribute to the process. On the other hand, the Japanese, in particular, were so focused on Aoki that they treated the rest of us like kitchen help, and we all found that to be insensitive at best. Ironically, one month earlier, Aoki told me, after I had been leading a number of people in a partner exercise, that I had led them into a new future. He saw in me, for the first time, the true Shintaido feeling, but I didn't have the ears to hear it then. Even now, I'm embarrassed by my behavior at that time. Outwardly, I seemed to lack confidence, often falling back on the refrain that I was too old and had started too late to do anything right. This line of reasoning was reinforced by the fact that I had turned 40 a few months previously. But that, as Alki often pointed out, was a convenient excuse. There was some other neurosis or weakness that my defeatism was shielding. I had to find a way of going to the heart of it and dealing with it, but how? Because of my academic or intellectual background, I had a tendency to rely on my brain power, not the power tapped and released by Shinto and I stuck stubbornly to that habit. But, as many spiritual teachers point out, using that tool only reinforces the power of the force you are fighting. By trying to control your darker impulses, you only feed them. It is yet another vicious circle. I think I even wrote that once, but still could not see a way out, nor would I take the many helping hands offered me. Psychologist Carl Jung provides corroboration of Aucke's analysis, placing it in Western psychoanalytic terms in his memoirs. People who know nothing about nature are, of course, neurotic, for they are not adapted to reality. They are too naive, like children, and it is necessary to tell them the facts of life, so to speak, to make it plain to them that they are human beings like all others. Not that such enlightenment will cure neurotics, They can only regain their health when they climb up out of the mud of the commonplace. But they are too fond of lingering in what they have earlier repressed. He goes on to say that reasonable injunctions to abandon such childishness cannot provide a solution, that one form of life cannot simply be abandoned unless it is exchanged for another. It was this other life that I was seeking in Shintaido. That summer, I went to Japan to attend their Daenshu, an annual workshop retreat that took place during the last week of April, and stayed on for another two weeks to attend practices in Tokyo. I had no idea at the time that I would be returning so soon for a prolonged stay, but the lack of any future plans certainly reflects my state of confusion at the time. This retreat was divided into two parts, a workshop for leaders and a general gathering, all of which took place at Mount Asama. This was to be the first time I participated as an ordinary member and not a special guest, and there were a few difficulties to contend with. One of these was that I was expected to line up with the others and wait in the formal Japanese kneeling position called Seiza, not my favorite, for as long as 45 minutes, until the sensei appeared to lead the class or lecture. I realized that, compared to other martial arts, Shintaido was relatively informal, but I still rebelled at long waits and what I considered to be excessive, if not slavish, deference to the teachers. I usually rationalized by telling myself it was another kind of practice, and that, if I were truly free, No situation could upset me, but I was never fully able to make this kind of ontological leap in reality. It was clear that, although invited to the leader's sessions, I was not on the first team and was actually much closer to being relegated to the taxi squad. Again, I understood this intellectually, but it was still a slap to my fragile sense of self-worth, and I brooded on it during the entire event. During one of his lectures, Aoki addressed some of the issues I was wrestling with. He was describing the various stages of a person's practice career and said it was inevitable, and even desirable, that confusion arrive from time to time. Seventy to eighty percent of individuals who start off in Shintaido or any spiritual discipline, don't make it to their original blossoming. Of those who make it, perhaps half-stop when encountering the inevitable difficult periods, while the rest keep going. Defeat and pain must be overcome before your practice matures, he said. This was certainly an apt description of what I was going through during this period, although it didn't serve to bring any light to the darkness, it just helped to define the terms. Upon returning, I decided, with Ito's blessing, to go to Japan to continue my studies. I think he realized that he had done all he could with me and felt that a different chemistry was called for if I was to take the next step in Shintaido. To his credit, he, unlike Marc Bassis, was more concerned with his students' well-being than his own self-esteem. He gave it one more try before I left, however, and it almost ended our relationship. Three of our French visitors, Robert, Bernard, and Philippe, joined in a practice on Ocean Beach at the end of Golden Gate Park. Ito had orchestrated a practice that involved two or three attacking one person with uchite, an open-hand strike, or tsuki, a thrusting movement. The person on the receiving end was to use one of the new throwing techniques we had been studying for the past few months. These were not my favorites, and I had long since admitted the wisdom of Aoki and Ito's decision to wait to teach them to us until the techniques were more refined. The main problem was that many of them involved lowering yourself rapidly into a crouching position to execute the particular throw. Short legs were a distinct advantage. After attacking a few times and being thrown, sometimes smoothly, sometimes awkwardly, it was my turn to receive. I think I did all right at first, but was very soon exhausted by my labored movements in the sand, and I gave up, allowing my partners to attack at will. I ended up under a pile of Frenchmen on the beach. Ito kept yelling at me to keep going, not to give up, exhorting me not to stop my mind. At one point, I yelled back at him, Screw you, I'm doing my best. Not exactly the recommended way to address a martial arts master. When I had responded that way previously, I figured it was just another way to attack with sincerity, but this time, I don't think he took it that way. Anyway, he didn't bring a halt to this sparring practice from hell, so we untangled ourselves from the pile and had another go at it. I finally started to apply variations of the basic form called Tenchingoso to deflect their attacks and, after a seemingly endless struggle, managed to tire them out and win the encounter, but only after being killed many times over. This episode was symbolic of the deteriorating communications between myself and Ito. We never really discussed it, but when I left for Japan the next week, there was a definite coolness in our goodbyes. What had started out as a cooperative venture to inaugurate a shantaito movement in this country had turned into what I perceived as a one-man show, with one half of the proposed partnership leaving the country for an indefinite period. During the entire four years we were together in San Francisco, I can truthfully say I never once brought myself to attack Ito wholeheartedly, as he wished, and Aoki recommended It's hard to understand why now. I'm sure it had something to do with my ambivalence in dealing with male authority figures. An overwhelming drive to do what was pleasing and wanted in order to gain approval, combined with the refusal to confront my own demons on a visceral level. The saddest part of this missed communication was that all he wanted was openness and trust, and those were the two things I could not offer him, nor anyone else. But I have always been an optimist and felt that yet another change of scenery would open up my new life before me. I was also going to study directly under Auki, who I had always thought of as my teacher, ever since I first met him in Corbevoix seven years previously. Perhaps, as he had pointed out, my practice had remained at a superficial level— I was in unbelievably good shape for a man of 40, but Shintaido had not penetrated deeply enough into my body or consciousness. This seemed to be indicated by his two direct physical interventions during his visits, the yanking of my belt and the pushing down on my hips. I still didn't believe it was necessary to literally delve into my neuroses in order to purge them. My faith in the power of Shintaito, and my own inner strength remained, despite the incessant nattering of the voices of doubt within. You've just been listening to chapter 13 of Michael Thompson's Untying Knots, and this is the Shintaido of America podcast. I'm Shintaido instructor David Franklin. We're about to hear chapter 14, but before we get to that, I have a favor to ask. It's not what you think. I'm not going to ask you for money or to subscribe to a paid service or anything like that. Actually, I am going to ask you for money later, but right now, that's not important. What's important is, if you're enjoying today's podcast, the most important thing you can do to help us out is to tell people about us. I want to give a big shout out... Okay, not that kind of shout. I want to give a big shout-out. That is a big thank you to those of you who have already shared the podcast on social media and also to those of you who are going to share it, which I hope means everybody who can hear the sound of my voice. Also important... A shout out to people who gave us a good rating on whichever podcasting app you're using. That also helps us a lot. So, if you haven't done that yet, it really doesn't take long. It would be great if you could just hit the pause button and do that right now. Just share the podcast on social media and give us a good rating on your podcast app, and then hit play again. I'll wait. Okay, thanks. On with the show. Untying Knots by Michael Thompson, Chapter 14, which was originally Section 3, Chapter 1 in the printed book, The Outsiders. Martine Breon and I took the same flight to Tokyo. She hated to fly, and I found myself in the unusual position of having to reassure someone else, since I was none too fond of life at 35,000 feet myself. She was also terrified at the prospect of having to find a living situation in Japan for herself, her husband Robert, and son Jeremy, who were to follow in a few months. She was accustomed to having Robert fill that role, and was feeling a little overwhelmed. Given my low self-esteem at the time, it was beneficial for me to have to think of bolstering someone else's for a change. That was more of an intense training for her than the actual practices and workshops she attended during her three-year stay in Japan. During the course of trying to help her through her terror, I shared my own problems with her, and, if it is true that real friends do not try to hide anything from each other, then that is what we became during our stay in Japan. This was an interesting and ironic way to begin my two and a half year stay in Japan. On a more mundane level, however, things were working out well. Wendy Laird, a resident Englishwoman who had been living in Tokyo for a few years and whom I had met during my previous visit, had learned of an apartment for rent in Komai, a suburb of Tokyo. I took the apartment and moved into it almost immediately. She, Masashi Minagawa, and his wife, Pam, lived across the river in Norborito, so we had the makings of a little Shintaito nexus 20 minutes from the heart of Tokyo. Wendy had also been teaching English and was able to send some jobs my way, since I was now obliged to actually work for a living after eight years of unemployment. Whereas in Geneva, New York, and in San Francisco, I had led a life of leisure which revolved mainly around practicing Shintaido, reading, sleeping, and eating. I was now to immerse myself in the hectic Tokyo maelstrom, studiously avoiding rush hours, however. I taught English in Japanese companies two evenings a week with a scattering of private lessons to supplement those. In my third year in Japan, I landed a job at a small university which was a nice way to end my stay. The Shintaido Hombu or head office, was located in the heart of the Shinjuku district of Tokyo and was a convenient location for the foreign contingent to meet, have tea, and head out to their next assignations. The Japanese Shintaidoists were generally busy during the day and we rarely intermingled, except during and immediately after evening and weekend practices and, of course, at the occasional workshop. At the peak of non-Japanese participation, I would say there were between 10 to 15 foreigners regularly practicing in Tokyo. Their countries of origin were fairly evenly divided among the U.S., U.K., and France, plus one brave soul from Australia. Some of us had been there for a while and were fairly fluent in Japanese, and others, like myself, Martine, and Robert, were recent arrivals and had to struggle with the language barrier, although almost all the Japanese Shintaito instructors could communicate in English. In fact, these years marked the greatest influx of non-Japanese to study Shintaito. The numbers declined afterwards due in no small part to the dramatic increase in the value of the Japanese yen. I mention this because it was also a time of turmoil in the history of Japanese Shintaito itself, and I think it allowed for greater cultural cross-pollination than might otherwise have been possible. Those of us with flexible schedules were able to attend four practices a week, three afternoons and one evening. The main goresha, goresha is a Japanese word meaning the leader, the facilitator, analogous to an orchestral conductor or a band leader of the practice. The main goresha until recently had been Masatake Egami, who was the son of Aoki's karate teacher Shigeru Egami. The younger Egami was full of charm and modesty and had been quite a hit with the foreigners. Since he was of a different generation than his precursors in Shintaito, he seemed less forbidding, and this impression was furthered by his friendly and relaxed manner. But he had left for Mexico on sabbatical, and the roster of instructors was in a state of flux. The Sunday afternoon practice was a kind of general celebration for all Shintaido members and was taught by staff, which consisted of the remaining Rakutenkai instructors, Rakutenkai being the original research and development group that invented Shintaido. Aoki was around, but not actively involved in the day-to-day operations. He would attend practice on an irregular basis, occasionally leading the more experienced people in more advanced techniques. His intent had been to retire from day-to-day operations, but those who knew him were sure we would be seeing a lot of him. Going to practice four times per week, in addition to my teaching duties and study of Japanese language, all helped to keep me in a positive frame of mind for the first year or so. After my experience in April, I tried to resign myself to the actuality that I was to be considered an assistant or pre-instructor rather than a full-fledged instructor, a demotion in fact, if not in name. It was also to be a belated and therefore difficult apprenticeship and yet another blow to what was left of my ego and served to add fuel to the cycle of hurt and resentment that had dominated the last two years of my time in San Francisco. On the other hand, this group of the up-and-coming was quite dynamic and infused me with some much-needed energy and a feeling of solidarity which lasted throughout my stay. In his Shintaido textbook, Aoki writes that he sometimes sees a Japanese instructor trying to do something for his non-Japanese student, albeit in a quiet or hidden way, and hears that student complaining about him without trying to understand what he is really doing. And I am sure that is what was happening for me both in Japan and in San Francisco. Aoki was adamant that people who came to Shintaido for a taste, or even a full meal, would miss its essence, or what he referred to as its invisible truth, if they expected it to be served to them on a platter. Although the foreigners were most guilty of this attitude, there were many Japanese who had difficulty seeing past the kata or forms they were studying and carried out their responsibilities by rote. Of course, they were more imbued with the philosophy that formal study, especially in the traditional Japanese arts such as tea ceremony or calligraphy, could be a path to spiritual awakening and that the expression of total respect for the sensei or teacher was a large part of it. I admit it was very difficult for me to approach my teachers in a humble manner, and I'm sure that this false pride, whether or not it was culturally based, added to the seeming endlessness of my quest. For better or for worse, Americans and other Westerners are more than a little suspicious of people who seem to be manipulating them in their best interests. I think at that time I would have been much happier if someone in authority had sat down with me and explained to me what the situation was and where I stood, rather than expecting me to assume that I was being taken care of. After all, I was 41 years old and slightly resistant to being treated like a child whose teachers knew better. I still believe that an inherent weakness of the hierarchical system is that it keeps aspirants in a state of dependent childhood and, in a very real way, stunts their development as fully conscious, responsible adults. I have seen too many examples of this to mention, but an extended period of dependency has rendered not a few of my fellow Shintaidoists poorly prepared to deal with the exigencies of the everyday world. As Shinto has spread in this country, we have had to find a resmedia between the eastern mode of master-disciple relationship, which is largely tacit, and western egalitarianism, which is often explicit to the point of legalism. I think the answer lies in assuring students of their value as individuals and at the same time asking them to accept the idea that they should be approaching their study with an open mind and that their relationship with their teacher will involve an exchange, not just of money or information, but of lives. There is a precedent in Western philosophy, the distinction Martin Buber makes between I-thou and I-it. Relationships. Hey guys, this is David with just a quick reminder again before we continue. If you've listened this far, you obviously like the podcast, so share the joy. If you're not a big social media user, that's okay. Just email the link to one person who might enjoy it. It's a good way to say hello to your friends. It doesn't cost money, it doesn't take long, and it will help us a lot. Thanks if you've done it already, and thanks in advance if you're just getting to it now because I'm nagging you about it. Okay, enough with the nagging. Back to Michael Thompson's untying knots. But really, if you like the podcast enough to have listened this far, then promise you're going to do it before you continue listening, okay? That's what the pause button is for. Okay, thanks. On with the show. Untying Knots, Chapter 15, which was originally Section 3, Chapter 2 in the printed book, Killing Me Softly. Aoki was actively directing workshops focusing on different aspects of Shintaito. Bojutsu with the wooden quarterstaff, Kenjutsu with the wooden sword, Karate, nagewaza, which are throwing techniques, or a particular Shintaito technique. One of the strong points of these special events was that the gaijin were included. Gaijin literally means outsider and is a shortened version of gaikokujin or foreigner. The gaijin were included not only as practitioners but as part of the staff, although it took a while for this to occur. It was a difficult step for some Japanese who were comfortable working together and didn't relish the prospect of having their wa- their harmony, disrupted by their sometimes clueless Shintaido friends. I should perhaps try to explain what it means to be a gaijin, a foreigner, in Japan, although that would be a book in itself. There are two concepts in Japanese culture that might be helpful in understanding this. honne and Tatemai. They roughly correspond to showing your true feelings in the first case and showing what you want others to see in the second. It is very difficult to be admitted to the world represented by hone, true feelings, if you are a gaijin, a foreigner, and this can be very distressing, especially if you think you are friends with someone and they really do not reciprocate, although they give the appearance that they are. There is always the nagging feeling that something is a little off, a little dishonest in your relationships, One reason for the younger Egami's popularity was that he seemed to be devoid of this cultural trait or perhaps his tatemai, his sense for appearances, was so highly polished that no one could tell the difference. When I look back, I remember my relationships in Japan as being very intimate and much more tactile than in my own culture but at the same time strangely impersonal, as if my acquaintances were dealing with a representation of some preconceived idea rather than a flesh-and-blood person. To use Martin Buber's terms, rather than an I-thou relationship, you often felt as if you were in an I-it relationship and you were it. I think we tended to refer to ourselves as gaijin much in the same way as black Americans refer to themselves using the N-word. It was an ironic way of asserting our humanity and sense of self-worth by expropriating their pejorative term for us. On the other hand, it must be said that many foreigners take advantage of the combination of Japanese hospitality, the relatively tacit nature of their interpersonal communication, and their assumption that non-Japanese are genetically incapable of understanding their ways and therefore not expected to act in an appropriate manner. I knew of some instances where guests of the Japanese would feign ignorance in order to avoid paying train fares, for example. Although the practice of trying to get away with something might have been common in their countries, it was not in Japan and was, I felt, a cynical breach of trust, and showed a lack of respect for their hosts. But, generally speaking, these barriers to understanding were effectively eliminated within the Shintaito group since we practiced, sweated, suffered, and celebrated in practice together. Without that kind of supportive environment, I wonder how any foreigner can enter into Japanese society. A workshop was scheduled at Kujukuri Beach soon after our arrival in Japan. The theme was to be bojitsu with the wooden staff, and word had it that Aoki was going to introduce an entirely new curriculum. On his last swing through San Francisco, he was returning from a nearly one-year trip through Central and South America. I had gotten a letter from him beforehand describing how he felt like a bird that had lost its song and needed to find new inspiration. Apparently, the trip accomplished this because he returned with a whole new shintaido and bojutsu staff program. Bojutsu is an ancient and indigenous martial art that Aoki wanted to include in shintaido to give it believability in Japanese martial arts circles. The bow, or wooden staff, itself is different from the Chinese version in that it is made from much heavier wood and is not tapered and does not lend itself to flashy gymnastic movements. Aoki found, however, that in the course of intense practice with a partner involving violent attacks and blocks, too many people were suffering injuries. He felt that practitioners were stiffening up and not using the soft, natural movement he looked for in Shintaido. He therefore changed the curriculum, or rather added a pre-curriculum that emphasized unification, Unification with the bow or the staff, unification with the earth, sand in this case, unification with the sky and with your partner. We, Martin Brian and I, we felt we were really present at a turning point in Shintaido history. We could see these hardened martial artists throwing their bow staffs in the air, catching them and rolling on the beach, Then they would play catch with each other and let the momentum of the staff dictate their movements. This was in contrast with the crashing of quarter-staff sticks that I had seen previously, and while there may have been some stubbed fingers when the bow staff was caught stiffly, there were no broken bones, the added dimension of playfulness completely altered the practice of bojutsu from then on. Although the kata, or forms, remained, and the practical applications in partner exercises were expanded and refined, they were infused with a new feeling. Not surprisingly, some of the more hard-headed among us had difficulty making the transition, which must have been similar in its revolutionary change of direction to that between karate and shintaido. In an unguarded moment, Aoki even wondered if Ito would be able to make the transition, but he needn't have worried. Ito was still as intent on learning from his sensei as he ever was. After the workshop, my enthusiasm was recharged. Since these techniques were new to everyone, I felt we were all on an equal footing, regardless of experience. And moreover, I did not feel at a disadvantage because of my lack of background in the martial arts. In fact, having played basketball was probably more useful than any martial arts training. Aoki later told me that I had been a special project for him precisely because I was the first Shintaido instructor without previous martial arts experience. He told me I should focus completely on doing soft movement with the bow staff for the next year or so, and that was advice that did not fall on deaf ears or meet with petulant resistance. Chapter 16, which was originally Section 3, Chapter 3 in the printed book, Trouble in Dodge City. There were some problems cropping up in the Shintaido head office in Tokyo itself that were to temper my optimism somewhat. Since Egami had left, there was a perceptible decline in the number of practitioners in Tokyo. He was, as I wrote, very popular, not only among the foreign contingent, but with the younger Japanese members as well. When he left, there was a void that no one else, with the exception of Aoki, could fill, and the latter was still holding to his retirement. As a result, the direction we received during practices was uneven. Some practices were transcendent, while others were pure drudgery, In addition, the generation gap I had begun to notice at workshops seemed to be solidifying, to the extent that the life-and-death style of Rakutenkai practice, the group that started shintaido, was increasingly a thing of the past and largely irrelevant for newer members. Egami had been able to bridge this gap, but there seemed to be no one else who could or would. While I had been enjoined to concentrate on soft movement, there was an opposite tendency to go back to basics in order, perhaps, to compensate for Egami's emphasis on content over form. This approach was perfectly fine for younger bodies and newer practitioners, but I was starting to feel the effects of my practice career, which was now rapidly approaching the 10-year mark. Up to this point, there had really been only one way to practice Shintaito, wide open and all out. Now Aoki was starting to explore other approaches, other practices, and that was where I wanted to go. Although the regular practices were becoming a bit monotonous, there were exceptions. One of these occurred during a practice led by Shigeru Toshima, one of the female instructors. As I was struggling through one of those interminable knee-walking exercises that the Japanese seemed to love, she made one of the nicest comments I have ever heard, You must try to follow the direction even if your body can't. Perhaps your talent is of another world. This made me feel much better about my knees thudding along the wooden floor, for a while at least. I was able to confirm her observation at a workshop where I found myself in the same group as Etsuko Aoki, Aoki Aoki-sensei's wife, and, as he once said, his best student. I believe we were doing kaikyakusho, a kind of squatting, jumping exercise, which is intensely demanding, again, for a long time. And she had run out of gas earlier than the rest of us because she had stopped practicing regularly in order to attend to her business and family. But when I looked at her, I could see quite clearly that her mind had not stopped. Her body wasn't functioning, but she was doing the exercise anyway. I determined that she would be my role model in the future and try to do the repetitive basic exercises with her spirit. This is the Shintaito of America podcast. You've just been hearing chapters 15 and 16 of Michael Thompson's book, Untying Knots, and I'm Shintaito instructor David Franklin. We're nearly done, but be sure to listen through to the end of the credits for The Cherry. Before the cherry and before the credits, I'm going to pass the hat around among you who are hearing the sound of my voice and do a bit of busking here on the information superhighway. This is the part where I not only nag you again about sharing the podcast on social media and thank you if you already have, I also ask you for money title of America, the producer of this podcast, is a totally member-supported nonprofit organization without any corporate sponsorship. There are no ads on the podcast. There are no large grants from foundations. There's just you, the people, the listeners. And there are many ways to support our truly micro-budget production of educational materials, and I really mean that. We produce a huge amount of content on volunteer power, but... Some things just require a few bucks in the bank. So, one way is to make a one-time donation in any amount, or another way is to become a member of Shintaido of America for $60 per year, if you're hearing this in 2023. That's just $5 per month. And if you can afford $5 per month, it would mean a great deal to our hardworking team you can do all of that and sign up for our free email newsletter and also find all kinds of free educational resources at our website where you can also find all the previous episodes of this podcast which is www.shintaido.org that's www.shintaido.org that's whiskey whiskey, whiskey dot Sierra hotel india november Tango Alpha India Delta Oscar. Dot Oscar Romeo Golf. Got it? Also, don't forget to send in your definitions or phrases that describe Shintaido in 20 words or less, and I'll read a selection of the interesting ones during the outro of the next episode of the podcast. Our email address is podcast at shintaido.org, and you can also find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube by searching for Shintaido of America. Our episode today was recorded and edited by me, David Franklin, with support from Sarah Baker, Connie Borden, Teresa Soldatova, Jim Sterling, the Joe Zawilski Memorial Fund, and of course, the members of Shantido of America. Thank you. Okay, here's the cherry. When you are trying to express feelings or energy from the deepest levels of your being, the techniques you use to reach these levels are often going to seem uncivilized to the casual or even interested observer. But that's what we do, and I think it's much better to do it con gusto than to pussyfoot around it with soothing words and evasive euphemisms. That was a quote from, indeed, Michael Thompson in his article entitled In the Space Between Life and Art – in Body Dialogue, the Shintaito Journal, number 3, Spring 1994. And guess what? You can read back issues of Body Dialogue Journal as PDFs, and you can also listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast, all for free, at our website, www.shintaido.org. Thanks for listening to the Shintaito of America podcast. Contents of this podcast, copyright Shintaito of America 2023 with the exception of Acoustic Guitar Effects by me, David Franklin, and Roberta Flack's 1973 version of Killing Me Softly with his song by Charles Fox, Norman Gimble and Lori Lieberman, a short excerpt of which was included for educational purposes. Shintaido, opening to life.